Hello, Three Dogs North listeners. Sorry for this awkward intro. We had a special guest on the podcast this week, musician Joe Pug, who is a singer-songwriter, lives in Maryland, and um, who I met a few months ago and connected with and has agreed to to join us on this podcast, which is great. We talk about interesting things, music, beauty, truth, God. Um, You can find Joe and his music on Spotify or any of the streaming services online. He also has a podcast, which is very worth your time, called The Working Songwriter, especially anyone interested in songwriting or the process of making music. Um, that can be found on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Also, just one final note, um, as when you do anything new, something always goes wrong. So the sound, through all my fault, uh, gets a little wonky at times. I've done my best to ameliorate it, but uh, I ask your patience and hope you enjoy the podcast. Three Dogs North is an attempt to objectify the subjective with little violence as possible. The following has been torn from its origins in space and time and put entirely at your disposal. So I'll probably do like a little intro because uh, this is a, a different kind of episode, but... Um, I thought we were just calling it Four Dogs North and not telling <laughs> anyone anything, anything was different. different. Right. I'll be the fourth dog. I'm fine with that. <laughs> so we are, we are honored to have uh, Joe Pug on the podcast, a, a musician who I uh, am a fan of myself and had a cool connection um, going to one of his shows. I was there with my sister. When was this? In probably oh, September. You were Chicago. Chicago. Yeah, we came through the hideout through uh, two nights in September. Yeah. yeah. So you had you put out a new album this year, Flood and Color, and uh, thank God for Spotify, man. They they know who you listen to, and they just kind of like I, I don't know if the artist has to promote it, but it'll just like I open up the app and they go, "Hey, somebody's in town that you're gonna probably want to see." And, Spotify's uh, a miracle on a lot of different levels. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You know, uh, it's um, the fact that I, you know, I play music and I have basic, my song is latently in the pockets of, you know, a couple billion people around the world. doesn't mean that they're going to tune into what I do, but they could. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> it's an absolute miracle. And, and you know, it's, it's monetized pretty well. There's a lot of artists that uh, complain about it, but at the end of the day, um, they spend something like 75 cents out of every dollar paid out to artists. I get a nice payment and royalty hmm. every month from them. I, I have nothing but good things to say about that platform and that company. And, and cool. just, looking just looking at your profile, profile you have, have quite a few people, people that are monthly, monthly listeners, listeners and, and a couple, couple tracks, tracks that are pretty, pretty well, well up there. Up there. Uh, What's amazing yeah. is that song, Hymn 101, which is my most listened to song. That song came out years before Spotify even existed. And uh, then Spotify does exist and, and, and people find it there. And, you know, um, this company... What's really cool about it from a business perspective is I have no cost of goods sold with Spotify. Mm-hmm. I upload one MP3 and millions of people stream it and they just send me a check. I'm not paying to press vinyl or CD or ship it or whatever. And mm-hmm. It's um, it's just money coming in the door for more creative work. It's, it's wonderful. Yeah, it's interesting that the way that the music business... I was just thinking about um, albums I had as a kid. Uh, we were... One thing that I noticed in doing just a tiny bit of research, which is kind of against our brand, brand for this for this, for this episode, that we we share a birthday, birthday Joe, Joe. A, Ooh, a weird birthday. Are you born April twentieth, right? Yeah, man. Well, yeah, the, yeah. It's a very strange birthday, isn't it? <laughs> People, People often, often think, think I'm joking, joking when I say I'm, I was born on April twentieth. I get ID'd at bars. When I was younger, when I did look closer to 21, I would get ID'd at bars. And they'd be like, yeah, 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 man. Right, this, this is an is obvious thing. Yeah. <laughs> but you are you are a year older than me, exactly a year older. But uh, we're all from pretty much the same generation. Rob and Mike are a few years younger than me. But the CD era was when I came up. And um, I will still, on Spotify, go... Uh, Every once in a while, I'll be like, I want to listen to this album. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. And there's like so many memories tied up. I was just listening last night to the Bare Naked Ladies album, Rock Spectacle, which was, I probably bought it in sixth grade. 
And it makes me think about girls I liked at that time and my room that I was living in and the stereo I used to listen to it on. And now the way we consume music is, is different. Um, you know, that I look at an artist, if, uh, like on your podcast, if you have somebody on, I've never heard of, I'll just go to their profile on Spotify and listen to their top three, three tracks. tracks. Off of whatever whatever album. Album. Yes, exactly. That's how uh, I listen to music too. And I'm not supposed to do that. I'm a, I'm in the business of making music. I'm supposed to listen to albums. Yeah, and you make albums and know what goes into like crafting this thing over months or years and it, as a unified whole, but still it's it's very but there was something um you said on one of your podcasts once that I wanted to just kind of salt the tip jar here about that one song. Like I can't remember who you were talking to, but um you said you can't you really as a like a musician to have a have a career that's successful, you have to have that one song. And I remember how I heard about you was my friend, Father Nick Blaha, um, sent me the YouTube video of Him 101, the music video that you did, which was, it was like oddly haunting and strange. It's like this guy I've never seen before just walking in like into this old timey saloon and this woman kind of staring off into space. And it was beautiful. And like the music, of course, and the lyrics and everything, um, there was just something about that song and it stuck in my ear for years. And, uh, I, I play guitar myself and I was thinking, I want to learn a new song. You know what song I always wanted to learn was that hymn 101. And I, that's when I got back on, found your stuff again and, uh, just kind of get, got into your whole catalog and everything. And it's a phenomenal song. That's what I sent Robin Mike, um, uh, as an intro to an entree to your stuff. Um, but could you say a little bit about that? Like, what, is, what does it feel like to have one of those songs where, yeah, a million, I don't, can't remember how many people streamed it, but several million people have listened to this or they've listened to it a million times uh, and then go to a city you've never been to and hear people singing the lyrics and stuff. That's just crazy, crazy to me. To me. It, it is crazy. And I've done a lot of creative. I did a lot of creative work before I wrote that song when I was like 22 or 23. And I've done a lot of creative work since. And uh, that song has always been singular. Um, and people come to my shows and, and they like the other songs too. And, and I'm, I'm proud of the work that I put into those. But that is a song, Hymn 101. I wrote it in about 15 minutes. And it's huh. a really lyrically dense song. I just wrote it in 15 minutes. I, I remain convinced to this day that I was just a conduit for it. And um, it uh, that song, it has it just gave me the keys to the world. And again, like, look, I'm, I'm a pretty, I have a pretty humble profile here. You know, I, I, I go around the country playing in bars to like, you know, a hundred people, 200, 300 people. Like, well, you're the, you're the second, second most, most famous, famous person, person to ever be on, be on three, three dogs, dogs North. North so. so I know, I know, <laughs> I know. But there's only been three people that you've had on. So <laughs> I'm, I'm right squarely in the middle there, but yeah, it's, but I will tell you this from the moment that I wrote it, uh, I finished it in 15 minutes, and I thought to myself, that's pretty good right there. And mm. then I recorded it, and the recording engineer that I played it for was like, man, that's really good. And then I played it for, like, my landlord in Chicago, and he listened to it, and he said something like, now that's a song that everybody could like. And it, it's huh. always been a song – you know, I've done so much other creative work, and I'm sure uh, you guys, whether it's other creative pursuits or just in, like, the homilies that you do, like – you know when people like something that you do and, and when they're just kind of like lukewarm on it. And mm -hmm. yeah. I, it's been my life has been 97% people lukewarm to what I do and then 3%. You know, you can tell when people are really moved and touched in their heart by something. And that song, for whatever reason, has always done it. I don't know why. It's a mystery to me. Huh. Yeah, that's what I was going to – and I've only listened to it a few times. It was awesome. But, I mean, it's that I'm curious to that question of – just you as an artist, what you would say to that? Like, is there complexity to that song? Like, even though it was only written in, in 20 minutes or it, it, like any thoughts on why that has seen the, the following that it has? I think it was, um, I think it was just uniquely inspired. And I think inspiration uh -huh. is the only thing that matters. And as I get older, I have different thoughts on what that inspiration was. Uh, and they become less and less secular by the day. Um, but, uh, 
it's just really an inspired work. And I'm kind of talking about it in the third person. I hope I don't sound arrogant here. I'm just talking about it. Like, I don't feel that much responsibility for the song. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Like, I don't feel like I um, am due credit for it. I mean, luckily, my address is the address that they send the checks for it. I mean, I'm not happy for that. But I really don't feel, I feel a very little ownership of that song. It came so fast. And I'm still, I sing that song every night on stage. And I'm still discovering new complexities to uh, the lyrics in it. So I, I just feel like it came from uh, a place that was otherworldly. So you, so you don't, don't get, get sick, sick of singing, singing it? it? No, no, I really don't, which wow. is amazing. And it's it's almost like a, a meditation or, or, or a prayer when I do. It, it, it wow. is, uh, wow. That song is um, one of the greatest gifts besides my family that I've ever been given. in my Probably the greatest gift I've been given besides my family in my life. Well, I like what you said, that it was really the keys to the world. Um, that kind of gave you the freedom to, because you've traveled all over the world playing and a lot of it is because of the success of that, of that song, song isn't, isn't it? it? Of that one song, yeah. Man, it's, that's, it's, that's it's, amazing. Uh, it's really humbling, uh, to be frank. And, you know, because I, I know a lot of friends who are a lot better writers than I am and or guitar players and singers, and their body of work is just stunning and great, um, but they never had that one song that gave people... You know, my, my manager, my music manager, always calls that song the gateway drug. To my music, and uh, I think it's a really apt um, comparison. And I, I just know a lot of friends who are extremely talented who are never lucky enough to get a gateway drug for their music. Yeah, right. I just uh, sort of off topic, but I just read the other day that Paul McCartney uh, that Christmas song, "Simply Having," he gets three hundred fifty thousand dollars a year just from the streaming on that song. <laughs> or just for whatever license on it. Whoa. Uh, yeah. Whoa. So it's key to the world, but he's got a much, uh, yeah, yeah, pretty, pretty decent, decent body of work. work. But, but he does have to pay because all the publishing. So in the music business, intellectual property of the songs <laughs> is called publishing. And all the publishing from the Beatles stuff, um, he doesn't have. And he literally has to pay the people that own the publishing for that when he plays it live at like a concert at oh my a gosh. stadium. Oh, yeah. really? Yeah, yeah, didn't Michael Jackson, Jackson buy all the Beatles? He had it for a while. And the really funny part about that was, and this story might be apocryphal, but I heard that Paul McCartney was the one that went and talked to Michael Jackson about how important publishing was. And Michael Jackson was like, okay, cool. And then he went out and bought the Beatles catalog. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I don't know how true that is. But. Well, to, the, to, the, to speak to the power of Hymn 101, uh, when I did learn it, so we have uh, four missionaries that, that live on campus here. I'm at a college campus in, in Chicago, U of I, Chicago. And um, they're all young, uh, recent college grads. And usually, like if I bust out a guitar with a group of people, uh, people continue to talk while I uh, play songs and stuff like that. But I, I just played that song, which I had just learned. I played it badly. But they all got quiet and they were like, wait, who wrote that? Who? <laughs> you know, so it it is crazy when you hit... Um, a vein like that. And I have my own thoughts about the song. What struck me, uh, I've come to test the timber of my heart. That's a great yeah. line. Uh, yeah. Uh, the more I seek, the more I'm sought. Uh, it's very, feels very theological. Um, and, uh, the last verse, um, when I'm stripped of my jacket and my vest and God's awful grace, that that whole thing about the, and reveals all the treasure in my chest, like the stripping away of the false self, um, by God's awful grace, which is a gift, but it can be awful and terrible too. The way that you have to suffer to, to, there's a great uh, book that th- the three of us like a lot. C.S. Lewis is, uh, till we have faces, which is a retelling of, I don't know if no, you've ever read, read that. Joe. I haven't. What's it called again? Till, till we, we have, have faces. faces. It's okay. um, a, retelling a retelling of the of Cupid. Cupid. Story. Story. Do you guys guys know? know? That's a good title for a book. I tell you that. Yeah, and that's kind of the moral of the story. Is like she, she has all these desires and and complaints about the world and the and her life and the way things turn out. Um, But she realizes like why the gods are silent is because she doesn't even know herself, or she's 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 just kind of babbling. And until she can kind of clarify through her suffering who she really is or what. 
I mean, the, the image is till she has a face, she can't see God face to face. So it's not that God is the limiting factor here. Um, but ourselves, like we refuse to, um, confront reality. reality. I'd say that that would be about the best description I could give of myself is that I am a walking limiting factor. I love the line. My favorite, favorite song of yours is how good you are. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and the line that always gets me is towards the end of it about, uh, everything you were meant to do or everything you were born to do, someone else was born to do it too. Um, I don't know that I believe that that's true, but there's something true in the you singing that. Cause I felt that before Four too. Uh, I wrote that song about um, a couple that I knew who basically tried to withdraw from the world entirely and they had the money to do it. And mm. Um, and so I wrote, I had written the verses for that song, which are really brutal. And they're a really big kiss off to, to these people, um, because I thought that they were making a, hmm. I didn't agree with their decision. But then, uh, once I'd gotten about 75% complete with the song, it was too, um, it, it was too brutal of a kiss, kiss off. And then I wrote the, the chorus of it. I know how good you are and how hard it is. Hmm. Uh, to to kind of balance oh, wow. that, but yeah, that's where like a line like that, everything that you were meant for, everything that you were born to do. I mean, it really doesn't need you to, to do it. it. Yeah, it doesn't. Else, yeah, yeah, that's, that's a, a good way, way to put it. it. Yeah, yeah, and you can drop out of the world, but uh, huh. you know, you, actually, you can't. And and they ended up discovering that years later. Hmm. So, well, so as someone Joe, who I, has made, you, go ahead. Go ahead, Max. Sorry, I talked hey, over I, you. Just a heads up. I think our timing is a little bit off with the 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 internet. I, I don't know if y'all are picking that up as well. Yeah, that's okay. Um, Joe, you said something that I'm I'm pretty interested in um, talking about. Um, just the writing of well, it sounds like probably how you write music in general. Um, but you talked about this type of an inspiration. And and a lot of your lyrics and how you're you're beginning to realize and believe more and more that it's it's actually less and less secular. So I, I listen to your lyrics and you know as a Catholic priest, obviously I can I can read a lot into it of how I see the world and my own values and my own worldview and but uh, you know a, a lot of your a lot of your lyrics. I mean, especially Hymn One Hundred One. When I first listened to that, I thought, oh my goodness, this is like the most it's a very beautiful song but it's it seemed unintelligible without um without the presence of of god you know without the presence of some other being who's who's actually seeking you who's actually uh pursuing the world pursuing humanity pursuing us as individuals and and a lot of your lyrics um seem to really resonate with with that and they, they, i i i would struggle to understand them um, without that presupposition that, yeah, there is a God here um, and he's actually seeking each of us, that each of us are good. And, and a lot of that stuff is, I would say, embedded in the lyrics. But you talk about how this inspiration has kind of changed um, over time, or at least your understanding of the source of that inspiration. Um, and I'm, I'm really curious about that because, like I said, it's the song seems almost unintelligible from a secular perspective. When I was younger, I would have like pushed back harder on that. Like, no, you can, it's completely intelligible. Yeah. yeah so so like, that's, that's what, what I, I want to know, know about. about. Can, can you, you speak, speak to, to that? that? Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I, I'm, I don't know much, but I do know that, um, you know, I think, so I wasn't raised uh, religious. I was raised agnostic and, but obviously I was raised, in, in a culture that was steep, deeply in uh, the Christian uh, Christian theology. And uh, I, I think one of the things that interests me the most, the more that I, I learn about it is, and, and this, is, this goes straight to the idea of Hymn 101. It's amazing to me if you, one thing that blew my mind is the idea in Christian theology that God would have created the world and that he would have wanted man to know him. You know what I mean? Like yeah. that God would want man like that. 
maybe if you grew up Christian, that just sounds like something. It's like, well, of course, but for for someone who was not raised that way, like that's radical to me that you could have um, this omnipotent force that would want mankind to know him. Um, That, that is really radical to me. And I think, um, I think that you can make more sense of the song Hymn 101 with, with that, with that uh, supposition behind it, for sure. Yeah, I would say it reminds me of something um, Chris Hitchens, God rest him, uh, the famous atheist who died, uh, said about because a lot of people will point to things like, um, well, all the great kind of classical composers like Bach and Mozart and uh, Beethoven writing explicitly religious music, uh, often for the mass. Uh, you know, box mass and B minor and stuff like that. Um, and he, he said, well, man can't, man can live without God, but the, he can't live without, without music, music or something like that. Uh, That's good. So, but I, I feel like that, um, I mean, f- stripping away my own bias as a, as a believing Christian, Catholic Christian, uh, I do feel like that limps because even I'm, I just I'm ten pages away from finishing a book that I kind of don't want to end. Uh, this book, Silas House, it's called The Cold Tattoo. It's about Appalachian um, people living in Appalachia who are coal miners and stuff. And uh, one of the main characters is Pentecostal, and her big temptation is to go to the honky tonk and sing rock and roll when she knows that it's a sin. And she, but at the same time, her church is like basically a rock and roll church. This Pentecostal like. Hmm. The singing that is going on there is intensely emotional, um, and people are rolling around on the floor and very physical and and stuff. So they're not like a world denying or flesh denying, but there was this kind of bifurcation between the two: uh, the music that's being sung at the bar versus the music that's being sung in the church. Um, what I like, why I go to bars and listen to guys like you, is because. Um, when I listen to your music, I, do, I feel like this is not uh, strictly secular in the sense, even if, even if the musician, him or herself, doesn't think so, you know, and that's, that's part of the, the Catholic worldview, too, is that the transcendentals, truth, beauty, and goodness are reflections of God. Anything beautiful or anything true or anything good is some concrete instantiation of truth or beauty or goodness itself, which is a reflection of God or an attribute of God. And like hymn 101 is is a, to me about the meeting of two longings. Like that's that line: "The more I seek, the more I'm sought." And then the the longing, even frustration of like, the more I buy, the more I'm bought, and the more I'm bought, the less I cost. Like the the futility of trying to answer the infinite longing of your of your humanity with anything but the infinite longing that's looking for you. Um, so oh, that's, that's a lot, a lot of, of, of word salad. But... I, 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 I cribbed that from a, a more Eastern source. I, I've been reading a lot of Khalil Gibran at the time. And, uh, and there is um, some of those paradoxes he, he had written about. I forget. He has one really famous book of, of all of his poems. And uh, I, I think that's where that part of it had come from. But, but you know, his Khalil Gibran in his uh, poetry was, I think he would have... Um, that was explicitly uh, divinely inspired, right? Like he he was religious. Do you guys know about him? At all? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he. Um, a lot of people use him in their wedding vows, but uh, he has a book called The Prophet um, with some poetry in it. That is, uh, I mean, it's uh, it's it's pretty moving. And, mm-hmm. and I, I was reading a lot of him at the time that I wrote uh, Nation of Heat, the album. Yeah, man. Pro- you, you, you're, you're into, into you read a lot of poetry. poetry it, seems it seems like, like on your podcast, podcast you, you often throw in an interview of a, of a poem. Yes. Um, what do you, you as, as someone who's, who's made a career, career out of art? art uh, I feel, I feel like, like the, the, the question behind it all is like, what is the purpose of art? That's a very people's hearts and to change them. What you say? To touch people's hearts and to change them. Okay. I mean, I really, I believe that deeply and. I mean, anyone knows that with any sense, with any common sense. We've all been changed by a work of art. Everyone has been changed by a, a work of art. Um, you can experience a good work of art, and it'll make you want to call 
you know, your sister that you haven't talked to in 10 years. You know what I mean? Right. Um, You know, art art is meant to, um, is meant to touch someone's heart and change them. That's what. That's good. Yeah. And, and often it's, uh, what, where I feel like art sometimes limps or when my own classification of a, a bad piece of art is one that doesn't go to the heart, that it goes to the, the brain, brain instead. instead. It's propaganda. Exactly. exactly. It's f- propaganda. <laughs> I, don't I don't know if you're on the, uh, the free P- priest podcast where I can drop an F-bomb. Right? You can, I'll, 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 throw, I'll, I'll throw an explicit tag on this one. Okay. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, anything that goes straight to the mind is propaganda and I don't traffic in Maybe, maybe I did when I was younger. I hope I didn't, but I, I try not to traffic in that. That's garbage. It's absolute garbage. Like, like when the, it's, it's a, a this, this is, is a, a this, this is, is a vessel, vessel for a, for a message. message. Yeah, this is a message for like either an explicitly political message or usually it's a political message. I'd say, um, and I just think that's garbage. And you know what? The joke's on them because it doesn't touch anyone's heart when you do something like that, and it mm. doesn't actually change anyone. As much as anyone might say out loud that it does, it doesn't. You can't fake actually touching someone's heart with, with music. And, you're not, and the people, the people that, that are going to like, like it are the people, people that already, already agree. agree. Exactly. And they're not really going to like it. They're just going to tell each other that they like it. Yeah. Because you know I mean? <laughs> you're, you're supposed, supposed to. to. And they're oh. going to post it on their profiles to show everybody else that they yeah. like it. Um, and that's not art. Man, and that might do really good in the moment, but you know, I mean, I've been around for not that long, but I've been playing music professionally for ten years now, and I I watch people come and go at this point, and I'm sure I'll continue to watch them come and go. And I think if you want to put out art that's simply propaganda, great for you in the short term, too bad for you in the long term, man. Really. Hmm. Yeah. What's been the fruit of that? Yeah. What's been the fruit of that? Like, what's um. And I don't know if you have this off the top of your head, but just the most moving thing that someone has has told you about like your art, or the art that is a fruit of of your work that has touched someone else's heart. Anything come to mind? Yeah, just give me a moment to think. Yeah. Um, I write a lot about. Um, I write a lot about uh, father figures in my music and uh, partly that's because I have an excellent relationship with my father. Uh, I have a wonderful father. My father retired a couple years ago and now he travels on the road with me selling merchandise and Hmm. we split a hotel room on the road. Oftentimes, you know, I'm cheap and we end up in a room that just has like one bed. We end up like literally you know, splitting a queen mattress together. <laughs> like really close. Um, but um, those songs tend to find people that had um, conflicted or unresolved um, relationships with their fathers um, or no relationship at all. And they're really moved by um, a message of a, like a really positive fatherhood. You know what I mean? Mm. Like they're really moved by that and they can tell what's coming from me is that I've had a genuine experience with that and it makes them believe in that. And, um, yeah. So, uh, and there's too many of yeah. those to mention right now. I mean, I just, yeah. it's almost sure. slightly when I play, I get messages like that from people. Huh? Yeah. yeah I, it sounds like, like I, do I do my, my father's, father's drugs. drugs. Yeah. 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 I, I, so I played that song and I was in Australia last month and I played that song to, yeah, I was playing like basically, uh, a high school auditorium. It was a festival, but I was playing like a high school auditorium there. And I finished playing that song to a couple hundred people. And this guy walked down the middle aisle in the middle of my show, very inappropriately and just walked up <laughs> to the stage and uh, just wanted to tell me for 30 seconds about, you know, how that made a difference with him and his father's life. And it was really inappropriate and really not good for the show. And usually I'm really harsh <laughs> on people that um, hijack the show for their own reasons, but I mean, you could tell that the guy was just moved in a way that I couldn't, I wasn't going right. to malign him. And I mean, I did tell him like, oh, all right, man, like you got to like sit the hell down now. Like, get out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, I mean, this, this is my, my job. job. I do yeah, this yeah. for a living. But he felt like he had to walk up and tell me his experience with that. And, uh, 
I mean, man, I'm I'm a pretty lucky dude. Like, who wouldn't want to do that for a living? Yeah, yeah. Well, in a way, it's kind of what we do. Uh, exactly what you do. In, in it's a similar way. way. Yeah. yeah. Well, I was just thinking because that's such. I mean, that's just such sacred ground, man. Like you know, to be able to impact someone like that, and you know, it might be a stretch to relate it completely, but um, yeah, there's just moments when I'm kind of overwhelmed with that feeling of like, gosh, this actually, whatever, like this moment or, you know, I always think of it in terms of like, just the kind of like the dignity and the responsibility of being a priest. It's like, you know, people come to you and like, it does, it does impact them in these ways that like touching hearts is, that's just a beautiful way to, to say it. But when that actually does happen, like when someone is moved by your presence, or I'm thinking of this was like a year and a half ago, um, a gal I didn't know at all before, and um, she just called her mom was about to pass away, and they had been falling away for for years, but they had been like practicing Catholics years and years ago, and uh, just went to, so I just, you know, as is kind of, honestly, like a lot of times routine, like we get an emergency call, we just go to the hospital and get the person anointed um with that sacrament and i just remember the and i ended up you know kind of becoming friends with this lady i had i said her mom's funeral and then um had dinner with them a couple months later and kept in a little bit of contact and um it was like hard for her to talk about and she finally when she was able to articulate it she said in a sense it it like it almost shattered her worldview because she was like i just didn't think you would come and then you did and it was this super routine thing in um, in my day, honestly. But and I, I just remember thinking that I was so awed by it of um, like that encounter encounter with her. I, just sacred ground was was the term that always came to mind there. And when you were describing that of like being able to to make something or to do something that could actually like impact and change someone's heart. I mean, that, that's like deeply human, human stuff, stuff man. man. It's a good reminder, like what you just said there, like, okay, well, me going to anoint this person that was passing away, like for you, like you're a priest, that was just another thing in your day. And like, you have to go, you know, you're going to go say mass like later in that day, you're going to uh, do a lot of different things, but it's a good reminder that, you know, when you have a job where, um, uh, the, the primary focus of your job is to, uh, touch people's hearts like it it's a good reminder to um how much dignity you have to afford people and that no matter how tired you are with your job or or how pedestrian it might seem or how routine like you got to give each person that you interact with for me it's audience members um you have to give them supreme dignity and they can feel it if it's not there they can absolutely feel it if Hmm. you're patronizing them or if you're trying to get on to the next person or if you're not there fully people can feel it Hmm. Um, yeah. If you're not there and giving them that dignity, that's absolutely yeah, that's absolutely true. And uh, I d- I'm thinking now of when we met in person after your show. I thought, you know, I've li- I've listened to this guy's music for years. I've uh, I've started listening to his podcast, and I feel like this is just a dude who I feel like I would want to be buddies with. And uh, there he is, right there. The line's not that long. I'll go talk to him. And it reminded me of um, of certain times, like in our lives, like when you get ordained. A lot of times, it's sort of like getting married, and there's a lot of receiving lines, um, or just at the average mass, standing on out after Sunday mass and shaking everybody's hand. Um, and in, and I know how exhausting that can be, and how giving some giving every single person in a crowd that kind of uh, dignity, that kind of reverence can be exhausting, but you can absolutely tell when someone's mailing it in or when they're like, ugh, these people, you know, they pay my salary, but who cares? <laughs> yeah. And then uh, the flip side of it is people can absolutely tell when you are giving them that respect and that dignity and they right. respond to it. They respond to it like it's fire, like it's primordial, you know, mm-hmm. uh, manna of some kind. And it's, uh, so that's good. Yeah, because you've been up there, up on the big stage, giving people something the the other thing i i really respect in the shows that i've gone to that have left a left an impact on me are 
when I feel like somebody is giving me something that they find precious, you know, that they've worked really hard on, they're not going to do a crappy job because this is, this is their thing. This is their treasure that they're holding out to the world. Um, and you know, some people are drinking and talking and, you know, uh, trying to make it about them, like whether it's walking up on stage or just hollering things out, uh, at the dead moments and stuff. And that can be a little discouraging. Um, I'm sure we get a little bit more, uh, silence where we're at. <laughs> we're given a homily. Although sometimes was, you got the crying babies and <laughs> <laughs> things like that. Yeah, no, I, no, I think, uh, I think mass is much louder than most of the shows that I do. There's no babies, you know, in shows, but, um, no, generally people are, are, are pretty respectful. And plus as priests, you guys can't do what I can do, which is if someone's like, I just had to do this when I was in Melbourne, Australia, someone was, there was, there's 300 people at the show and there were six people ruining it in the back talking. And so I got to just get on the mic and call them out and tell them to all shut, shut the hell up. And I got applauded for it. And, uh, you, you guys can't really do that in your job. So. No, they don't <laughs> can, can you, can you imagine? Oh man. Oh, man. Yeah, yeah, we did. Whoa. I don't know, man. I think if there was someone, uh, uh, I think if a priest did that, they might be applauded by, uh, <laughs> Yeah, well, here's nice. here's a thought I've had about art and the purpose of art is uh, I feel like when I look at a, a painting at the Art Institute or listen to a song or read a poem or, or a novel for that matter, um, I think that what I really respond to or when I feel like making art myself, like somebody has been shown something by the world, by God or by some encounter, a person, a relationship and now they have a medium, some way that they can express that thing that they've been shown to show other people, which in a way, like if I looked at uh, a painting of a person versus looking at that person themselves, there's something transfigured or different. The fact that it was filtered through the artist's mind and heart and then their hands or their whatever instrument, um, that it elevates it and it's, it makes it this... Uh, occasion for connection and encounter, which is what I think we're, we're after. And the fact that, you know, and then I think good art also reflects something even beyond the, the two people connecting, you know, the artist and the, and the audience, for instance, um, then it's open to a third transcendent other. Um, and that to me is like, wow, when you feel like you're in that dynamic or that rhythm, then you are, you're connected to something deeper, but the art can be about something very, very particular. It's not like it has to be particular enough to be, to be recognizable, like a, a good lyric. This is a, this is a, a thing I'm curious to hear your thoughts on Joe is like, what, when you are writing a lyric or when you're listening to somebody and you're like, that's a good lyric, you know? Um, or when you end up writing a verse and you're just like, you know what, that sucked. And you just cross the whole thing out. Um, you know, it's too heavy on the message or, or just as clumsy or doesn't sound right. Um, when something just clicks, it's like, it's very particular, but it's also so universal because like so many people can access it and connect. Um, you know what I'm saying? Like what, what is that, that like, <clears throat> even at your show, for instance, there's, <laughs> this is, I feel like a throwaway lyric, although maybe it has some deeper meaning, but, um, uh, I call today a disaster. She calls it December the third, like that, that lyric in that song, um, people weren't singing along with a lot of it, but everyone sang that line. <laughs> uh, cause it's just such a good lyric. I, or my favorite of yours is, uh, if I didn't have, if I didn't own boots, I wouldn't need feet. It's, it's such a weird lyric, but I, every time I hear that, I love that. I'm like, that's, that's a great, Line. You know, I will say that there is a fair amount of things that I write. I mean, I don't write anything and then release it that I don't think is of a certain quality. Mm -hmm. That being said, I'm always surprised by what particular lines or what particular songs people kind of uh, grab onto. And in a way, it, you know, the modern word for this would be like upvoting on like Reddit or something yeah. like that. Like people, there's just kind of like this, um, there is this, uh, I guess you could call it the wisdom of crowds or 
people gravitate towards something um, together for a reason. And I don't quite understand what it is. If I did understand what it was, I'd write seven more Hymn 101s. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but I can't do that. And believe me, I've tried <laughs> really hard for 10 years. Um, yeah. I don't know. I, I don't know what draws people to particular lines. Uh, the better I get at knowing that, the more successful I will be at my job. I think I am getting a little bit more successful at it, but mm. it's a pretty ineffable thing. And you don't know it until it gets up in front of people at a show or until you <laughs> upload it to a platform like Spotify and you see what people are gravitating towards. Not, you know, what's been put on a playlist that has 2 million followers. So, of course, it gets a lot of listens. Like, what are people seeking out on their own to listen to? What are they mm. upvoting? It's a pretty democratic way of of an audience deciding what is meaningful to them. Yeah. yeah. Is that is something, something that you trust? trust? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I mean, like look, there are there are artists who are like geniuses, okay? So like they they do not respond to this to that kind of the democracy of the crowd there because they're light years ahead of everybody. Um, But there's only a handful of those geniuses in human history. And there's only a handful of them in every generation. And so like, I'm not one of those, man. Like I'm a different, um, have you ever read that Herman, Herman Hess book, um, Narcissus and Goldman? No, no. It basically tells the story of two artists. And one of them is basically a young man who's a genius. Um, but who lives a very profligate and uh, uh, you know, just a wasteful life. And the other one is like a craftsman who's nowhere near the genius of this young man, but who spends a lifetime um, just kind of like humbling, trying, trying to work on his craft. And he, and he turns out pretty darn good stuff. Um, so <laughs> if I could compliment myself, I'd say I'm probably the latter there. Like I'm the guy that I, there's a lot of art that I love. Um, I think I can kind of, work pretty hard and get it in the right place and make a difference in people's lives. But I'm not like, I'm not someone who's going to be ever ahead of the curve. It's just not who I am, man. You know? Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think for people like me, this kind of democratic idea of people finding the art and upvoting it works well, but no, if, if you're just a freaking genius, um, who's, uh, 40 years ahead of everybody, if you're Bertolt Brecht, you know, if you're, um, uh, who else could we count in this category? You know, I, I, I'm coming to a loss right now for words, but it, it doesn't work too good for the geniuses, but they get found out eventually, you know, and right. they change everything. Yeah. Well, I, I'm thinking of a silly, this, I mean, this is a really stupid example from the uh, crowd upvote, but I, one of the, there's a school connected to my parish, St. Mary's School. Let's go Knights. And when I was visiting the school and kind of getting to know all the, especially the middle schoolers, they were in the middle of uh, voting for the student council, especially for the eighth graders. So these are like the top dogs in the school. And without fail, every eighth grader that I talked to who said, hey, who's running for president and who are you voting for? There was one guy, Cameron, who was running for president and no one was running against him because he created a meme which um, they nicknamed Daryl the Barrel and Daryl the Barrel was simply a barrel that he put eyeballs on and then it said vote for Cameron or something like that (laughs) and it the whole school lost their minds they thought it was like the greatest thing of all time they didn't know who Cameron was didn't care about Cameron but Daryl the Barrel (laughs) told them what to do caught fire (laughs) so basically they were just voting for Daryl the Barrel but it was everybody for some reason, and I could not figure out. I didn't get it. I didn't understand what was the big deal. And they're like, "Yeah, it's Daryl the Barrel." I mean, how could you vote against him? But the crowd <laughs> had voted, and I I couldn't understand it. I didn't. It didn't make any sense to me. But um, well, that's kind of why it's funny when when companies that are marketing people that are like, "Well, we we need to make like a viral video or a viral post," like the. The way the crowd dynamic works, especially with the internet and everybody being able to cast their vote through their their clicks and eyeballs and stuff, nobody can manufacture that. Daryl the Barrel 
him 101 it, it's just like there's something mysterious about the fact that this just hits some vein of human I tell you what, interest. so when i started in the music business 10 years ago the big deal was you get a publicist and they would get you written up in you know rolling stone or or whatever you know all the the rolling stones of the world you would get written up in and it made a difference um, but now it's 10 years later and no one cares about any of that. Um, <laughs> I can tell you for a fact, like I've, I've been written about in that type of stuff and it doesn't move the needle. And about 18 months ago, I started, I decided on my social media to start making like some hyper targeted kind of funny memes for the world that, that I live in, which is like the, the, the literate folk uh, music world, which is a pretty big niche. <laughs> literate and folk. What's amazing <laughs> is... I'm at a point now where I get so much engagement with those funny memes that I put up that I would rather have a really good uh, funny meme like that that would draw attention to my album than an article in Rolling Stone. Because wow. I, I'm I'm straight up serious, man. Like wow. it's it's Whoa. it's crazy, and I've I, I've I've had the benefit of both throughout my career. You know what I mean? And it's. You, we're just seeing a complete sea change. What's interesting is when you make these memes, people understand that they're being marketed to. They understand that. Like you're not, it's not like some um, uh, uh, Trojan horse where you're right, you're right. getting the message for your album in surreptitiously. Like they understand that they're being marketed to and they appreciate that you gave them a laugh as you marketed your product. Oh, wow. it, hmm. It's crazy. It's like the Dollar Shave Club video. I joined. I joined immediately because it was hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> or why people watch the Super Bowl for the ads? Because they're like this. You know, I know that they're trying to manipulate me into buying things, but it's funny. Uh, yeah, do a good job. I, okay, it's out there. <laughs> do a good job of manipulating me. Um, <laughs> were you talking about not being a genius, Joe? Um, I. Th- I was thinking of uh, a story you told on, I can't remember what episode, but the, I think you were in Sweden and, the, and there was like some moment where you're meditating and coming to grips with, with uh, your own limitations. Cause I would say that you're, you're, you, you have a genius of, of your own as, uh, as people do, but yet not 40 years ahead of the curve. You're not a Picasso. Um, but uh can you talk a little bit about that? Like coming to peace with, with who you are, the kind of till we have faces moment of like, the, well, this is who I am and that's good that actually. actually. Yeah. So well, that was, hey, a I, don't I don't know that, that story. story. Just, just a heads, a heads up. up. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. So that was a moment I've been touring for about seven or eight years and I had been going for this one particular thing. Like I thought, you know, when I put my first album out, uh, nation of heat, that would have been like 2009 or something like that. And it got, it got a pretty good I, I came out of the gate pretty good, you know what I mean? Like it was good and I thought, oh man, well if it continues to scale like this, look out world, you know. Um and I continued to tour like that and make all my decisions around that sort of uh, idea of a growth model. And then I ended up on this tour behind the album that we put out in twenty fifteen. Um I toured the whole year in the States. That that year I toured more than I ever had. I toured like two hundred and twenty days on the road. Mm-hmm. And uh I ended up on like a seven-week tour of Sweden, like just the country of Sweden, seven weeks. It was very ill-advised. Wow. And um, I was meditating in the van uh, because it was the only place. I was sharing a hotel room with two other guys in the band. So I was just, you know, the only place I could be alone was in the van. And I was meditating. And I was trying to clear my mind. And I just broke down in tears because something inside of me broke open. And I just admitted to myself all at once that this one particular dream I'd been working on just hadn't worked and it wasn't going to work and it was over. It was just done. And, um, that was devastating, uh, for me, but, um, it allowed me to, I, I just moved on, man. Like I, I started working on a new album in a different way. I started a podcast, which has been a really big boom, boon to me. Um, I started a family. My wife and I got married and we had a couple of kids. We moved, we bought a house near where I'm from. Like I just changed life, but it was only because I had admitted to myself, um, that one thing I had been 
going for it, had, it, it had just failed. Like objectively, it had failed and I could have kept on going for it, but I knew it was done and I just moved on. And it was really painful, like really painful at the time in the scheme of things. My life has been a bed of roses, but um, it, it uh, I'm really glad that I recognized it at the time and I'm really glad that I moved on. And now it's five years later and um, I'm just, I'm in a very happy place. I mean, I'm as happy, oh, happy is not the right word, but I'm in, I have as much meaning in my life right now as I can possibly stand. And that's a good thing. Hmm. Yeah, I just love that. There's, there's a line from this book I was talking about earlier. Uh, one of the characters said that they're like bemoaning the people that think that they have to have a big life to have a good life. Um, and there's something to be said about having a small life. Like one of the heroes and patronesses of this podcast, St. Therese of Lisieux, made famous the little way. Um, she was a nun who died when she was, what, 24, guys? Yep. yep. In uh, Lisieux, France, in the small Carmelite monastery, uh, and is now world famous and uh, uh, has devotees all over the planet um, through her, her autobiography, A Story of His Soul. But she basically lived this quiet life of a lot of suffering, actually, um, losing her mom and and her sisters going off to the, the monastery as well, and uh, just made famous the thing that Mother Teresa was inspired by doing doing small things with great love. Uh, gave her this immense power, actually. Uh, that spoke to, I mean, it, it is funny that she did actually become this world famous person who's uh now interceding from heaven for for all these people that get roses from saint therese but um the way she lived her life on earth was extremely simple and uh embraced her limitations um, sure and and you know that that fame that she has now like a lot of good that, that did for her earthly uh, right. self you know like it did no good for her earthly self she never even knew you know so exactly uh, hmm. uh yeah, I mean, well, I think the older I get, the more I realize uh, what a burden it actually would be to live a, an extremely big and public life. Um, uh, now, that being said, would I love to be going around playing theaters to a couple thousand people? And it, like, I'll take that in a, I'll take that burden in a heartbeat. Uh, right. but, <laughs> I will say as, as an, an audience, audience member, member, I prefer, I prefer going, going to the to small venues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and that's me. And man, like, uh, I, I just try to be... I've been given an immense amount in life, like given the chance. I've pretty much been given like an ideal life, man. Like I, I just, I can't imagine in the family that I've had, the opportunities that I've had, the, you know, the, the work that I get to do creatively. Like there's not a day that I don't wake up and just thank God that, uh, I, I mean, I, I really think that I must have just saved a, uh, an orphan off uh, some railroad tracks. That's kind of how it feels, man. You know, it's, um, uh, you know, don't get me wrong. Like there's shows, um, that I played this last fall. We were pretty, pretty busy touring and, you know, you go through the same town that you, you're like, man, I've been in this town 10 times and I've over the last 10 years and I've played some pretty dang good shows here. And, um, I really did hope that I'd be in a theater by now, but no, I'm still in the, the club with, um, uh, but you know, the people who are in that club, that that's what matters. And the people that are in there are, it's like this really devoted audience that's been there for a decade that, you know, I'm like in the merch line afterwards. Now I'm seeing people, hey, we got married to your song. Okay, next time I see them, hey, this is our one year picture of our one year old. Then the next time this is a picture of our three year old. Like, wow. I, I know these people now. You know what I mean? And like, so what's that worth? That's that's worth something, you yeah. know. And, and that's that's a meaningful thing. That's, That's awesome. awesome. What a what gift, gift to be able to, able to say, say that. that. It is. Big gift, man. Yeah. Yeah, it's very moving what you said about you, your relationship with you and your and your father. Um, that y'all are so close, metaphorically and literally, at times, <laughs> sharing beds. Um, but, me, yeah, I definitely picked that up as well. I mean, you obviously write about um, your father in, in different ways and at least – your music is a fruit of the relationship that you have with your father. And it definitely comes through. And, um, like hearing your gratitude about that, it, it just makes it even more real. Um, 
because you listen to it and you get this sense like this guy has to know something about dads and or at least has to know something about a relationship with a father who loves him. Um, and I think, unfortunately, we're in a culture, in a mainstream culture right now, where um, uh, stories like that are, I think there's a real uh, dearth of them. And I'm not saying that bad dads don't exist. I'm not saying that absent dads don't exist. Controlling and manipulative dads, of course, that's all true. But it's like, man, um, this idea that someone can be a, a good father, like, uh, that's a very, very, very real thing that has been, um, uh, it's been a pretty concrete thing in my life. And it does exist. And you can be a part of that um, if you want to. You know, whether it is if, you know, if you're a man, you, you can do that yourself by starting your own family or or, um, or obviously the path that you guys have chosen or, or you know, a woman choosing a relationship with a man um, that she thinks would have that capacity in him. And then to, to try and help draw that great part out of him while he tries to draw the great parts out of her. Like it's possible. It's there. I've experienced it. I, I've been the beneficiary of it. And I'm trying to. Um, I think a large part of what I write about it is, is that. Yeah, man. And I think that something that I observed, and this maybe uh, happens in all the generations, but particularly in our generation of priests, um, I think there was a, a real identity. I mean, some, some priests don't want to get called father, you know, just call me Jim uh, kind of thing, which I, I honestly don't have any hangups about it. Um, but I do sort of see uh, hidden behind that, even if it's not intended, a certain abdication of uh, the responsibility of what that means when somebody sees you as a father. Like Rob's story about uh, going to anoint the person in the emergency situation and this person being like, well, I didn't, I didn't even expect you to show up, but you did. But, you know, being, seeing oneself as a father or being fathered and seeing that example from good fathers, both you know, physical, real uh, fathers and, and real spiritual fathers. Um, I will say to me that celibacy, part of the priesthood, um, was a hard sell. And uh, during the seminary, just like struggling with what what is the, how does this get lived out so that you're not just like a bachelor or just available as everyone's slave all the time. And to me, the biggest uh, <laughs> shift was, uh, going to this orphanage in El Salvador and lear I learned Spanish there a couple summers and um, this one moment I mean the whole the whole uh, experience formed me uh, but this one moment where all these children uh, were duped into thinking that I'd been ordained a priest overnight because I was up <laughs> I just happened to be up wearing the robes doing this kind of liturgy thing because there wasn't a actual priest to do it so I just kind of subbed in but they didn't know any different. They just thought, oh, he's up there wearing the robes and he's doing the doing the mass, so he must be a priest now. And they all just came up to me afterwards and it was all these three and four-year-old orphans uh, giving me this kind of mosh pit hug, screaming, Padre Connor, uh, Father Connor. And it was just like, I, I got it in that moment. It was like a sacrament of the reality of what the priest is. Uh, when you see fatherless children looking to you and being like, you are now responsible for us and, and love us uh, kind of exclusively. That's why you don't have your own children because of course they would always take priority, but now you can be a father to the fatherless. And that idea of the father, of course, Jesus's way of addressing God. Uh, he is the son. So he, he addresses God as a father and that's who, who he reveals him to be. And the prayer that he tells us to pray, our father who art in heaven, that, uh, to say, I mean, mothers, obviously, we, we revere them, especially Catholics, uh, with Mary. But, um, but uh, yeah, as a man, I think it wouldn't, have, it wouldn't have been something I could have imagined doing, being a priest, being celibate, not having my own family, if I didn't think this is a way of being a father. Yeah, and what I'm saying here, it, uh, I, I'm not saying this to the detriment of, of how much um, mothers mean in our life in any way. Like, you know, I've, I've had pretty much the exact same relationship, uh, meaningful relationship with my mom as I have, uh, mm -hmm. with my dad and, and my wife, um, is, uh, is being the exact same thing to our kids. I'm not, but I just find what I'm called to creatively write about is, um, 
is the father aspect, and I don't know why. Maybe it's the artist in me feeling like it's a little bit underrepresented and I want to write about it, but who knows why. Um, hmm. And it sounds like that becoming a father yourself has been transformative. Yeah, man. It's been, um, I mean, uh, words really fail, man. I, I, uh, it's, I, I experience fatherhood, uh, like through pure, unadulterated terror, uh, when my wife was <laughs> pregnant. And I did not, not see that coming. <laughs> yeah. Like it, I was really scared, uh, when my wife got pregnant. We got pregnant on purpose. I was 32. I was a grown man when my wife got pregnant. Wow. Uh, and I was still terrified. I had to like go to therapy and stuff, man. Like, I was really uh, hung up with the amount of responsibility that I had taken on um, and still am to a certain degree and still really beat myself up, um, it, it, you know, maybe to bring things full circle here in the ways that I am a walking limitation. Those things are all really uh, put into stark relief when you have a kid and you just think to yourself, you know, it's bad enough that I have all these uh, limitations and all these ways every day that I do things wrong, that I know that I'm doing them wrong and I won't fix them. But I don't want to pass that on to my kids. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want them them to have these hang-ups. Like, um, so I'm in a more comfortable place with it now. I've been a dad for about um, three and a half, four years now. And having my daughter, um, I was a lot less scared than having my son, who was our firstborn. But, yeah, I mean, fear of letting them down, fear of abdicating my responsibility has been the primary where that I've experienced uh, fatherhood for sure. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, well and it, it speaks, speaks to the, the, the love. love. Like, like you, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be scared, scared if you didn't care so damn much. much. Yeah. 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 And, and just know the responsibility that, you know, in their own way, these kids didn't ask, well, I don't know what the theological thing on this would be, but in, in my view, these kids didn't ask to be born. Okay. So, um, you better do right by them. And, and also coming from my background where my life has been so, um, so good. Uh, I, I just feel like there was a high bar set for me by what was given to me in my life that I, I really want to, I want to be the person in, in that relay race that drops the baton. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'll leave that mm. to my son. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, man, you're making me think we're getting close to time, but you're making me think of a, of, a. I drive home. I went to college in Champaign, and uh, the first year I didn't have a car. My my dad actually came and picked me up in Champaign, which is two and a half hours south of where we lived, and and picked me up for a break. And we were driving back, and you know that time in your life, you're just thinking about like, what am I going to do? There's so many. It's the it's the ship leaving the port, and it's like a ten degree difference in in tack here is going to make a big difference of where I end up. And um, hadn't really started to think about the priesthood very much, and I was dating a girl and. I was thinking like about getting married and having a family and I remember expressing to him, I, I don't think he understood what I was saying, um, but I felt like I had to say it. I was like, I, I don't know how I could bring a person into the world. It was just like this weird existential terror of like just in my 18, 19 years of all the ways I could have screwed up and did, but I'm, you know, have found myself in a decent place. You know, it's just so risky uh, to, tr- you know, to say nothing of your own limitations, but then the the freedom that a, a new human being has to make uh, or break their life and choose the path that they're on. And they can, you know, they can break your heart uh, just as you can break theirs. And uh, it's kind of ironic looking back how I, where I ended up, because I did feel too in the celibacy decision, like, well, then there's going to be people that don't exist because of this decision I make. And how can I live with that? And, you know, you just like, you can drive yourself crazy thinking about, uh, these things. But what freed me was the, the idea of vocation, that this is a call. This is not something that I'm deciding. It's a story that I'm living, uh, that's being written, you know, man, that's such a powerful way to, to look at your life that you're, you're, you're living out a story. And I hope, you know, there's there's a couple key tenets. There's three or four things I'd really like to impart to my kids. The first and foremost being, um, when something goes wrong, it's probably your fault. You're the adult. Yeah, like it's probably. I mean, it could be someone else, but it's probably you. 
Uh, and then uh, another one of those major things would be you are living your life is an adventure and you are living a story and guess what it's a hero's journey it should be a hero's journey you know you should um, uh, that's the way that you should look at it and I think it, it really reframes if you're not living a narrative um, that's how we all get caught up in uh, uh, the walking limitation. That's when our walking limitations become the, um, uh, you know, the the focal point of our life, rather than the, yeah. the these things that we're ashamed of that we keep to the side. You know. Huh. Wow. That reminds me too of a real quick <laughs> this guy that I knew. He's a young son who was learning violin, and. Uh, he, it's hard to learn violin and he was maybe like seven or eight years old and he was, he just like was, got frustrated by this thing he had to practice and he just threw himself down on the floor and started crying and saying, I want to quit. I don't want to do this anymore. And instead of like forcing him to do it or, or guilting him, like I'm pay, I paid for this violin, blah, blah, blah. He just reflected back. He goes, once upon a time, there was a little boy who tried to play the violin, but it was hard. So he quit and then he cried the end <laughs> and he goes is that a good story and the kid's like no he goes well it's your story it doesn't have to end that way i just thought what a dude, cool I'm way of father dude i'm using that well joe man this has been great i really, really appreciate, appreciate it. we appreciate you coming on and uh absolutely yeah. Be, happy Be happy to promote, to promote all, your, all your all your stuff, stuff. thanks uh, for having me on i'll i'll join anytime and just as, as you have other guests on, I really would like to remain in the, the number two spot as far as famous Only less famous people are coming on. Please. Yeah. Yeah. Joe, I got to say, it it's really cool to talk to you. I, I'm certainly going to look more into your story, but even just chatting, it's really amazing to hear, um, like, I guess authenticity would be the word, but just how connected with what it sounds like yourself, like... Uh, you are it's been a joy to talk to you but i just really appreciate your honesty and, and sharing a lot of that stuff like like rob said it's a lot of stuff is sacred ground and i think that's when artists kind of do their best work when they get out on the the edges the fringes of how we understand the world and uh, that's a sacred space and kind of bring meaning to it and say it in a way that you've never seen before and and uh i think your your own authenticity and connection with your own heart and your own mind and um yeah all that i really appreciate it yeah it's been a it's been a joy thank you it's it's yeah, it's, it's been a, a real honor to be on thank you guys three dogs north are juice seabisk and michael metz Conversations have been edited to sound smarter. Audio and transcripts of this episode are exclusive property of Mundelein Seminary and may not be rebroadcast without the express written consent of Major League Baseball. Good girl.